good morning, Village Church. Uh, if I don't know you, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, I read a shocking statistic this week. I know there are lots of shocking statistics out there. And for fear of overload, I'm going to give you one more. And the shocking statistic that I found this week is this. 100% of Americans will die. And everybody knows that, right? That's sort of like the Geico commercial. We all, we all know that. Another actual statistic this week that I found, that the average American thinks about death three to four times a year. The average American thinks about death three to four times a year. It's only January, and so this is time one, like, you're welcome, right? You, you only have to think about death two or three more times this year if you're going to hit the average in America. And this morning, as you've already heard in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the teacher is going to remind us that we might actually do well to think a little bit more often about death. That we may actually do well to think a little bit more often about our death and to think about the reality that we don't predict the day of our death. None of us knows the day of our death. We don't know when that day will come. Yet, the teacher's going to show us this morning that even though we should be more mindful about our death, maybe we should think about it a little bit more than three to four times a year, that we shouldn't live our lives focused on our death, worried about our death, especially if we are in Christ and by God's grace this morning, if you're a Christian, you are. I want to I show you that this is true from the structure of the passage we're in this morning. Um, on the slide, you'll see that it's sort of set up this way, verses 1 to 6, the teacher tells us everyone is going to die and we can't stop it. Everyone is going to die and we can't stop it. At the end, he tells us that everyone is going to die and we can't predict it. And in the middle, he's going to tell us that we should enjoy the life that God has given us in light of that. And it's meant actually structurally to make you focus on what's in the middle. And I did my best this morning by graying out the stuff on top and bottom and making it a bit smaller and making it bigger in the middle and white so it's bold and it pops. And the Bible can't do that, but it can do it with structure. And this morning the teacher does. He's going to be talking to us about death, but he wants us to see the reality of the incredible life that God has given us. Before he dives into those ideas, he offers one other guiding idea on life and death. And uh, I think we see it in verse 1. Would you look at it with me? He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. Examining what? How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So before we talk too much about death and life and death again, the teacher kind of sets it up by reminding us that every person will face the same things in life, and it's all in God's hands. If you ever wondered where the phrase, it's in God's hands, comes from, like maybe wonder no longer, I, I think it may come from a place like this where it literally says that it's in God's hands, that our deeds are in the hands of God. The teacher's already told us this uh, many chapters back. We looked at it last week in chapter 3, where he, he starts off by telling us there is a time to be born and there's a time to die. And then he goes on to tell us there are times for all kinds of other things that happen in between the time of our birth and the time of our death. Everything else in the middle is the things of life. 
which is, is the reason why I believe that section of Ecclesiastes is known by so many people. You don't have to be a Christian to know that section about a time for every season. Like many, many people know, and, and not just because of the, the song, right? I mean, they know because of the reality of that in their life. They see poems and they see references and literature and movies and scripts and all kinds of things that are written re- reminding us about that reality. And many of them actually calling from that passage In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you don't have to be a Christian to know this. I think we can all relate to it. And now he's reminding us of all these things in our lives that that they're actually in God's hands. And this morning I want to tell you that if these things are in God's hands, I think it's also true that they are before his eyes. That if these things in our lives, both good and bad in our eyes... All these things in our life, if they're in God's hands, then they're actually before his eyes. And I think what that means is that he sees it all and he knows it all. God sees everything in your life. God knows about everything in your life. The Puritans had a lot of time to think about this. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Instagram and Facebook. They didn't have Candy Crush or whatever game it is that you play. I mean, they didn't have any of this. They just had nature. (laughs) And the workings of life before a lot of modern technology. And they would look out at the world and think about what is going on in the world and what is going on in, with God and what is going on with our relationship with God. And they, they observed a lot. And they created terms for some of their observations. One of them that many of you may know is this word quorum Deo or this phrase quorum Deo. It literally means before the face of God. And they understood that it's not just all in his hands, it's all before his eyes. He holds it all, but that means that he sees it all and he knows it all. R.C. Sproul talks about it this way, to live quorum Deo, so to speak, is to live one's entire life in the presence of God. We, We understand that he holds it all, he sees it all, he knows it all, under the authority of God and to the glory of God. And that is the goal of the Christian life. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever, wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. He holds it all in his hands. He sees it all. He knows it all. It's in his hands and he sees it with his eyes. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. Now, this might feel a little overwhelming or it might feel a little intimidating to know that God sees everything. But if you're a parent, like you use this strategy all the time, right? Like when you drop your kids off at the Irvine Spectrum and they're going to roam around with their friends, you remind them, (laughs) I'm not there, but guess who's watching? My mom was the head of the PTA growing up and, and when she said, guess who's watching, I knew she meant God, but I was like, where are her friends? You know, like I know... Someone is watching what I'm doing, but I know he was watching. It is a little overwhelming. It might sound intimidating, but it is true. God is watching. He sees everything. But it's also meant to be extremely comforting. God just doesn't see everything. He knows everything. So when that same child experiences something in their life, and you've reminded them already, he sees everything, he's watching everything, so watch what you do. And they're wrestling with something, they're struggling with something, and you go into their room and you don't just remind them of that reality. It's not just that he sees everything, he knows. And so you might sit down with them a bit more tenderly. Maybe you sit on the edge of their bed. Maybe they're a little emotional and you remind them, he knows. And God sees. 
It doesn't just mean he's watching. He's watching everything you do. He knows. It's all in his hands. And yet even though we can find this reality, I think, very comforting, Coram Deo, that we live our lives before the face of God, I think many people also feel it confounding (laughs) because of what the teacher says in the end of this verse. Did you catch it? He said, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. See, I think the masses of people in the world who are living under the sun, S-U-N, and not also under the sun, S-O-N, the son of God, that is Jesus, those people can tend to see the good and the bad things that happen in their lives as God's love or God's hate for them. God's approval of them or God's anger toward them. Because he sees everything and he, well, he allows it all to happen anyway. And this morning, if you're visiting us and you're not yet a Christian, let me try to bring it just a little bit of clarity to this in the maybe 30 seconds I have to address it. If you're not yet a Christian and you're living under the sun, that is S-U-N, but not yet under the sun, S-O-N, our hope is that you would live your life under the sun someday, the S-O-N sun. But if you're not yet a Christian, I want to let you know this morning that God doesn't hate us. God hates sin. And he hates the effects of sin on our lives, and he loves us enough to let the consequences of that sin that affects our lives to affect our lives, to affect the world, to affect our lives and the life of the world so that it drives us to him. He loves us enough to allow it to affect our lives, the consequences of our sin to affect our lives so it will drive us for him. It will cause us to look for him, to search for him, to reach out to him. That may be the reason you're here this morning. There's some natural consequences of the things in your life because of the reality of sin in the world and in your life as you live it in the world, are leading you to a place where, like, there has to be something else. There has to be greater help. There has to be another way. God is gracious in that. God loves us enough to allow that to happen, to drive us to him. And if you're a Christian this morning, um, maybe you already have clarity on this. You've read theology books. You know this idea is the passive wrath of God, that God allows some of the consequences that happen in our lives for, for that reason. But I want to remind you again this morning that God doesn't hate us. He loves us. And he loves us enough to use even the hard things in our lives, even the things that are caused by our sin. God's big enough to redeem it and to use it. Even the sin in our lives that God hates, he can use it. He can redeem it for good and for his glory. That's how great he is. God doesn't hate us. God loves us. We might feel like we experience things in life that are, the love or the hate of God, but it's more likely the love and the mercy of God toward us. Drawing us to him and making us more like him and including us, our little lives, in the things that he's doing for the sake of his glory. I think that's the, I guess, minute and 30 second answer that I can give for now. But it's not just that all kinds of people will face all kinds of things in their lives. The teacher knows that and he he reminds us, good things and bad things. But all kinds of people will face the ultimate thing in life. And that's what he gets to in verses 2 to the first part of verse 3. Look at it with me. He says it's the same thing for all. 
since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, to the good one, so is it with the sinner, and he who swears as is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Not only is everything in everyone's life in the hands of God, but every person will face the same things in life, including death, right? Every one of us will face the same things in life, including death. The same event happens to us all. No one will escape death, and there's a reason for that. The reason takes us actually all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. We're after, in Genesis 1 and 2, the earlier parts that... It tells us about God's creation of the world and making it good and very good and perfect place for us to live and to thrive in our relationship with him and each other. Giving us literally everything we need for life, the exact life that he's created us for. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day you eat of it... You shall surely die. You see, death would be the consequence, not the passive consequence now, the active consequence of our disobedience of God, of our disregard for God, of our, as Tim Keller has said many times, the de-godding of God, the dethroning of God in our lives. For us deciding, you're not God, I'm God. You don't control my life, I will. You don't tell me what to do, I'll tell myself what to do and when and how and why. It was the active consequence, death. And I know some of you are likely thinking right now, <laughs> isn't that a little extreme? Like one act of disobedience and the consequence was death. Isn't that a little extreme? You might think that until you see the results of it playing out just a few chapters later. If you know, you know the story. By Genesis chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. After our first parents sinned in the garden in chapter 3 and broke the command, disregarded God, disobeyed him, dethroned him in their own lives, so to speak. It only took a few chapters before we see the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually, that didn't take very long. Theologians call this idea, this concept, total depravity. It's not that we couldn't be more evil, we certainly could. And when we look at the evil in the world that's caused because of sin, maybe sometimes we think, well, it's, it seems pretty evil, and, and it is. And it's not that we're as evil as we can be, as hard as that is to believe. It's that every part of us is affected, it's tainted, it's distorted by evil through the presence of sin in our lives and in the life of this world. And this is what the teacher is getting at, I think, in the second half of verse 3 when he says, Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. That makes sense. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they go, they go to the dead. Church, this morning, look, we all know that the world says that people are mostly good. What the Bible says is that people are mostly mad. 
that people are mostly mad, that it is madness to ignore, that it is madness to reject, that it is madness to run away from the God who loves us and the God who created the perfect environment for our lives. It's madness to thwart all that. It's madness to, to shun it. It's madness to snub our nose at it. It's, it's madness to walk away from it. It's madness to resist him in it. It's, it's, it's crazy to walk away from a God like that. And to think that we have a better plan for our lives, that, that we can do it better than he can. People say that people are inherently good. That's what the world says. The Bible says we're inherently mad. It's madness. That's what the teacher says. That's a pretty stark picture. <laughs> but unfortunately, the, the teacher, he wants to add a, a little darker hue. If you're an artist, he, he wants to grab a bit more charcoal and just press a little harder and get the hue a little darker for us. As he's painting this picture of the madness of our lives and the certainty of our death and the finality of our death. And he does it in verses 4 to 6. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog has better, is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. We'll get to that in a moment. But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. For forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Teacher saying death is so hopeless that even a dog, which was like the lowest animal in his day, like in our day, think of a giant rat that could actually bite you, right? Like the lowest animal in their day was a dog. Even a dog that was alive has more hope than the, than the most glorious animal in their day, the lion, right? Even the poorest homeless person in L.A. Has, who's alive has more hope than a dead president, right? We see this reality. And he gives us four reasons why it's so hopeless. He says the dead, they know nothing. There's no more to learn. The dead know nothing. The dead have no more, more reward. There's nothing, no more reward to earn or to gain. The dead have no more memory of themselves. No one remembers them. Do you know who was president 128 years ago? Like, no, you don't. Not many people do. Do you know who was president 80 years ago? Some of you do. Most of you don't. We don't know a lot of stuff that happened last week in the news cycle. The dead have no memory of themselves. They come and they go. And the dead have already poured out their passions. That's what he's getting at when he talks about the love and the hate and, and the envy they've already perished. It's all their passions have already been poured out. They cannot pour out their passions anymore. There's no more opportunity for that. Again, it's a pretty stark picture. It's a pretty hopeless picture. But do you see the glimpse of hope in it? Do you see the glimpse of hope in this verse that the teacher is giving us as well? He's starting to give us a glimpse of hope when he says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. You see, the dead have nothing. The dead know nothing. The dead have no more reward. The dead have no more memory of themselves. The dead had no more passion to live out, but the living, the living, the living can love God with all of their mind. The, the living can use the mind that God has given them to think about and to imagine and to consider and to ponder so many things, like the Puritans who we talked about earlier. 
The living can love God with all of their minds. The living can store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. But the living can use their living and the living that they make with their money and their resources to store up treasures in heaven, to, to store up heavenly rewards, not just earthly ones. See, the living, they can create a legacy so that they will be remembered. The, li the living can create a legacy for not only their family, but for the family of God. So there is hope for them. And for the kingdom of Christ, there is hope for them. And the living, the living can live their life every hour of every day, pouring themselves out with the passions that God has given them. These are God-given passions that he's given us. And we can live our lives pouring those things out. The living have a lot of hope. And if that's true, if there is some hope for our lives, even in the light of the hopelessness of death, then how should we live while we're alive? How should we live our day-to-day -day lives while we're alive? The teacher knows we're asking this question. Those are big picture things. Storing up a legacy, storing up treasures in heaven, using our minds to think about great and grand things. Like these are all big picture concepts. What does that look like in the day-to-day -day things of everyday life? The teacher knows we're thinking it, so he tells us. And in verse 7 he says, go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. <laughs> For God has already approved what you do. And here we see that everything in our lives is in the hands of God. So we should enjoy the things that we have been given by his hands. Everything that you have been given in your life is, is held in the hands of God. And so enjoy everything in your life because it's been given by the hand of God to you and to me and to us. If you remember the book of Ecclesiastes over the last number of weeks, and I know we took a little gap for Advent season, you'll remember that five times he's already told his readers that they should enjoy their lives, and he's going to tell us a seventh time. But this time, the sixth time that he tells us, it's with an increased sense of intentionality and intensity. He says, go. I want you to think about Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. It's a command. The teacher's not making a suggestion here. He's telling you, go. He's commanding his audience to go. Go do these things. Go live your life for the glory of God and for your joy and for the good of other people. In light of your death, go live your life. Go live out your passions. They've been placed there by God. Go live your life and create a legacy for your family and the family of God. Go do that. Go live a life where you store up treasures not only here on earth but in heaven and that you have an eternal reward, the law of eternal rewards. And go live a life where you learn and you love God with all of your mind and you, you put the mind that God has given you to work for your good and for, for your joy and for the good of other people and for the glory of God, go live, is what the teacher's telling us this morning. He's saying, go. Go eat and drink. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Again, this is a command. He's like commanding them. He's, he's urging them. He's exhorting them. He's saying, go, go eat your bread and go drink your wine. For God has already approved what you do. So like whatever you eat and whatever you drink and whatever you can afford to eat and whatever you can afford to drink. Some of you are on the Ruth Chris program. Good for you. 
go eat it. <laughs> and chew that filet mignon slowly. And swirl the wine in the glass that pairs perfectly with it. And then breathe it in with your nose in the glass. And then sip it slowly and enjoy it because it's a gift from God. If you are on the Taco Bell plan, good for you. Get that macho combo, whatever, burrito, double wrap thing, and enjoy, chew it slowly. Although I know you kind of want to eat it fast, you know, like, enjoy what you can. They serve Pepsi, which seems like a sin, but, but sip it slowly and let it go around in your mouth. And mostly, shame on you that if that's your budget, you're not at Del Taco, okay? Because we all know that's where you should be. You'll get better experience for the same price. Go enjoy what you eat and enjoy what you drink and do it all the time. Do it every day. Verse 8 says, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. The New Testament, I think, example here is like rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Like be joyful in all that you do in your life all the time if you're in Christ. Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with gladness and a merry heart. Whatever it is that you eat or drink, enjoy it. God has gifted it to you. And in the good times, eat and drink those things as a celebration. There's so many things to celebrate in life. Take your family out. Go celebrate these things. And in the hard times, eat and drink them as a consolation. In the hard times, fix a good meal. And sit down around your table. And as your heart hurts, make your palate happy. And allow good food and good company to ease your soul. And heal your heart. These are gifts from God. Go enjoy your marriage. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife to whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil which you toil under the sun. Go enjoy your marriage. Enjoy what there is to know and love about one another. I understand that marriage is beautiful and it can be beautifully difficult sometimes. And I know you might not enjoy everything about the marriage that you find yourself in today, but you enjoy the things that you can and by God's grace you'll enjoy the things that he fixes in both you and him or you and her. You'll enjoy more of it in the years to come. You look at many of the older couples in our church and you know that is true. You see the way that they love one another. Enjoy your marriage. This week, Dean and I were out every night doing counseling appointments and things like that and mostly around marriage. Every night of the week. And one night of the week, we went over and shared a meal with a couple. And as we were talking about a marriage that someone else was struggling with, that they were trying to help with, we... We had such a great time with them. And as we were walking out, he, the husband was telling that he actually would love to come alongside other couples in our church. And he was talking about some of the wisdom that he gave to one couple one time. And I think it is so wise. He was talking about a young couple that was, was getting married and they had just gotten married and they were first year of marriage and they came with their whole like Dave Ramsey plan. You know, and I, I, there's nothing against Dave Ramsey. Like I'm, I'm for him. I probably should have done his plan more, right? So like I'm for, for the plan. But they were so stressed about like nickeling and diming every single little thing that they, they never went on dates and they didn't enjoy one another. His advice was, scrap that. 
like the first year of marriage can be hard enough. Like go, go on date nights. Go spend some money. Like you can save that a little bit later. Like the first year of marriage, go enjoy one another. Like go enjoy your marriage. And I thought for that scenario, for that situation, for that couple, that was real. That was really good advice. It was really good advice. I thought she was going to say, I've just looked up how to have a great marriage or something like that. Like, I can tell you. Go enjoy your work. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Whatever your work is, enjoy it. Or enjoy the parts of it that you enjoy. I know every job has a part where you're like, ugh. You know, you don't want to do that part. I get it. Enjoy the parts that you can enjoy. Enjoy your work. And don't apologize for that. Do the parts that you love the most. Do it most often. And don't apologize for those things. Enjoy your work. Or if not, go find some work that you enjoy more. This week I was with one of our elders. I was with JT Ayers. And, um. We were having lunch, just talking about life and ministry, as we do every month. And we were talking about work and our work, and he was talking about his work. And in this season, like, he's tired in his work. But he reminded me about a conversation he had with one of his mentors. And he was telling his mentor how tired he was at the end of the day. And his mentor said, good. Good. You should be tired at the end of your day. You should be tired. You should collapse in the chair because you have worked hard to the glory of God and for the good of other people. If you come home from work and you're not tired, you probably haven't done good work. Go work and be tired when you're done with your work. I thought, I actually think that's really good advice. Go work hard. Go work so hard that you're tired at the end of your day. That's what God's given us sleep for, so that we rest. We rest from our work, but we rest for our work for the next day. Listen, the teacher says that enjoying all of these things is a really good thing. And I'm inclined to believe him. He says in verse 7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. God has graciously given us all of these things in our lives to enjoy. (laughs) What a blessing. Lest we get too excited. This is Ecclesiastes. Lest we get too worked up. Let's not forget about the reality that we should live our lives in light of our death. And the teacher bookends this section with death again because don't get too excited, okay? Again, I saw that under the sun, verse 11, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor rich to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. It's counterintuitive. But time and chance happen to all of them. For man does not know his time. Like fish are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Every person will face the same things in life, including death. So we should live our lives in light of our death. We should live our lives in light of our death. If we ever think about death, we should think about it in these terms, that we should live our lives in light of our death. We should enjoy what we eat and what we drink. We should do that all the time. We should enjoy our wife. We should enjoy our husband. If you're a single adult and you're here this morning, you should enjoy the relationships that God has given you in this season. 
that marriage relationship, a picture of an intimate relationship. We know that's possible even outside of marriage. You're going to read in your scripture reading plan pretty soon about, about David and Jonathan who shared a relationship and a bond that was so close it's hard to describe. Like enjoy the relationships that God has given you. Enjoy your work. And do all of it in light of the fact that you know that you only have so long to enjoy those things and to do them well for the glory of God and for the good of other people and for your own joy. C.T. Studd has this famous quote. I'm sure you've heard it. You know, only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And sometimes when I get tired or when I get tired in work or when I'm discouraged or like, this is the quote that I remember. This is the quote God brings to my mind. Only when life will soon be passed. I only have so many more years and I don't know how many. Only what's done for Christ will last. It helps me to focus on what I should be focusing on in my life. I should eat to the glory of God. I should drink to the glory of God. I should create friendships to the glory of God. I should be a husband to the glory of God, a father to the glory of God, a pastor to the glory of God, a friend, a counselor, a coach, a confidant. Whatever I'm doing, I'm doing, I should do all of those things to the glory of God because only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ in everything will last. The best way to live our lives is in light of our death. As Christians, the best way to live our lives is in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us. Jesus did create a perfect world for us to live in. He was there in the beginning, but we sinned against him. We dethroned him, our parents in the garden. We disobeyed him. We would have done the same things that they have done. We disregarded him. And that brought, our sin brought all kinds of brokenness into the world, including death, physical death, and spiritual death, separation from God. And the reality is that this is true for the righteous and the wicked. Like in this passage, there's the righteous and there's the wicked. Right? There's the good and there's the evil. There's the clean and there's the unclean. Like this is true for everyone. You can't work your way. You, we, we can't work our way back to God. We're separated from God, right? We can't work our way back to him through cleaning ourselves through some kind of religious practice or offering sacrifices and more sacrifices and more sacrifices or looking good on the outside when we're dirty on the inside or being the kind of people who say they swear an oath and keep their word but not always but look like we do. Like we can't just do it better and appear to be righteous before God, even if we appear to be righteous before people. And God knows that. So God put a plan into place from eternity past that would deal with that reality, the reality of our, not only our physical death, but our spiritual death. And it's outlined in Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament. Let me just read it through for you here this morning. And, and as it washes over you, think about Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and the realities of life and death in that chapter. Our and you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's madness. We were living in madness, resisting God, running away from him. 
but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we are living in that madness, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God does not hate us. He hates sin. He's kind to us and he shows us mercy. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we get to live our lives for the glory of God in all of these ways and more. All of these ways that the teacher has described and more. Jesus prepared these things for us beforehand, that we should walk in them in the day-to-day goings-on of our lives. And I think that's really good news. And the good news statement this morning, I think, reflects something of that, that we can enjoy the life God has given us without the fear of death because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you're with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you're worried about your death, what you need to do is you need to acknowledge your sin before God, that you have dethroned him and become the God of your own life. You need to admit you have no idea what to do about it yourself and no ability to do anything about it yourself. You need to tell him that you believe that that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to live a sinless life for you and to die on the cross and in your place and for your sins. You need to tell him that you believe that, that he is the Son of God come to save you from your sin and that you don't know everything you know about it, but you believe it and you want to place your faith and your hope and your trust in him. You want to be forgiven for your sin. You want to be freed from it. You want to be free to live the life that he created for you in the beginning. You want to live that kind of life while you live, and you want to trust him for the life ahead in your death. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that with you after our time together this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that there's so much hope for us, even in the midst of a subject as hopeless, seemingly hopeless as death, because of the death of death through the death of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We acknowledge it. We actually rejoice in it this morning, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection for us, in all that you've given us to enjoy, both in this life and in the life to come. We thank you. We sing to you. We do it in your name, Jesus. Amen.